This week on the Zone of Truth, it's a fang banger spectacular. It's Griffin I, my favorite monster, the vampire in Pathfinder, with many of its exciting variants, and of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the Zone of Truth. back i thought this was gonna be a banger battle segment it can be that well it's not too late unfortunately it would just be bang 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 pretty sure we'll see (laughs) no we're not gonna do it because yes you are correct these are all easy bangs of course griffin how you doing today pretty good drinking myself a uh pbr hard cold brew Ooh, those are the good ones, right? Yeah, they're the ones I like. They're not super sweet. The other ones are like have the fake sugary creamer in mm. them, and they're horrible. Yeah, but these are pretty good. Yeah, got any sidecars to follow that up? I think I see some familiar cans on the yeah, table. Yeah, got the got the probably two better, I guess, flavors from the Bud Light sour seltzers, the watermelon and the blue raspberry. Get myself in some kind of mood for running the champagne tier patrons through a game tonight. Yes, how exciting is that? I cannot wait. That's going to be a good time. I know we're talking about what's going on in our lives and stuff, but what scenario are we playing? You want to give me like a two-second download of the cool stuff we're getting into tonight? Yeah, it's Devil at the Crossroads. It's uh, set in, in 2E, like the World Wound has closed, and the Sarkoris Scar is where the World Wound was, so it's set right by that. The premise is that you're kind of sent in as couriers in a, an area that's kind of too dangerous for traditional couriers. So they, mm-hmm. they send in Pathfinder Society agents to trade in information with the Sarkeesians who are kind of the the folks that still live in the area of the world wound that are kind of fighting the remaining demons. And I won't tell you much more beyond that because it'll spoil it, but Hey, that's fine. It'll be a very fun scenario. And I think it's kind of thematic with some of the stuff we've been playing Linked Legacy and Carrying Crown wise. It's a, it's supposed to be kind of a horror scenario. Oh, rock and roll. That's awesome. I've never played anything around that part of the world, even though I've always wanted to. So I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. I'm playing a Animal Instinct Barbarian. Monk Dedication, of course. Yeah, the way yeah. you do it. Absolutely. Which animal did you pick? I picked the shark. The sh- oh, okay, so you're going to have a bite attack. Yeah. I got this hobgoblin, and I imagine his face is going to split open in the giant toothy jaws grin, and then he chomps on people, and you got that monk thing where you can do crushing damage when mm-hmm. you got the bite going. going to be fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. As for what I'm drinking, I am drinking a raspberry seltzer. It's called a seltzy. This is from a Lacabra Brewing. I've had several of these. I've seen those around lately. They're they're around here, but I saw them back home when we were buying drinks. Looks like it's uh, looks like it's quite volatile over there. Really sipping fast to keep the fizz from uh, spilling out. Keep going, buddy. It's a race against the clock. Uh oh! Don't what drip any of it. Fuck? Don't drip it. Don't drip it. Quick! What the fuck? Wow! Got a. 
hairpin trigger. That started fizzing and didn't stop for like 20 seconds, it felt like. Oh, boy. Was oh, I spilled, I spilled two drops. Okay, that's fine. It was a pretty good pull on my end. No, I don't like these. <laughs> and, and let me tell you why this was a complete shock to me. Not why I didn't like them. They're just not that great. But I got a tall boy four pack of these at the Brewfest mm. long time ago. And the other three were way under pressured. Like you could squeeze the sides of the cans. Yeah. And they were basically flat. And I think I was drinking them on hideous tomfoolery or something just to get rid of them. But this one actually had a full pressure can. So I was like, wow, how exciting. A regularly carbonated beverage. Overly, apparently. No. Apparently, they're supposed to be a little flat to prevent 20 seconds of uh, splooge. They've got all four cans worth of carbonation in this one. So that's what I'm drinking. What have you been up to this week, though, Griffin? Let's talk about that. Well, I've been kind of prepping this scenario. I was able to go back home, actually tried a couple of really tasty whiskeys, my favorite of which my dad sent me home with. It's an Angel's Envy, which is a brand of bourbon that I love, but it's a rye, and it's aged in rum casks, and it's crazy good. So... Went home for a little bit, celebrated my little sister's engagement, and I'm looking forward to, I have downloaded, but I haven't started playing Elden Ring, Ooh. Uh, which I, yeah, I'm a fan of Soulsborne games, so I think it'll be very fun. I'm excited to play it. We've just been so busy and continue to be so busy that I'm going to maybe get to play it for like two hours on Sunday, which is just a blast. But other than that, I'm on the Thriller Bark arc of One Piece, which is the perfect arc it's the spooky haunted island arc where i'm at they just got to like this huge haunted castle that the main doctor scientist guy there is kind of like a dr frankenstein type character but he's also kind of like a dracula character i can't really peg him yet Mm -hmm. but everything on the island is either some kind of zombie or ghost or like a stitched together abomination okay so I'm excited to see where it goes. I th- I've heard very good things about the arc. It's like Rags Mouta's reach up in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the new season of Disenchantment came out. I found that out last night after I got back home after we recorded two back-to-back episodes of Link Legacy. I was wasted. <laughs> it was like, oh, Disenchantment's back. Yeah. Started playing season four. Really didn't know what was going on, yeah. so I'm going to have to restart that episode. I had the same feeling when I started it. I, I kind of, maybe it's the release schedule, maybe it's the fact that I think season three was maybe not as memorable as the other ones, but yeah, I kind of lost my place, picked it back up. It's kind of the same deal. I, I don't know that I love the show, but it's fine to have on in the background. I've always consistently enjoyed it. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever had like laugh out loud moments during disenchantment but i've never like regretted my time watching the show yeah so i need to watch a season three recap and then hop back in and start the episode over because again i I was pretty fucked up like disenchantment doesn't hit the same notes as futurama does for me which by the way have you heard that futurama is apparently getting picked back up by hulu i'd heard this yeah but they're i think the only person that they don't have back is John DiMaggio, who is the voice of Bender, and it's like, you better give that guy what he wants in his contract to get him back, because I really don't think you can do Futurama without the voice of Bender. 
I think that's yeah. pretty freaking key. I mean, granted, like some of the other voices, like uh, the guy that voices Fry, who's I, I know, but his name is blanking on me for the moment. Voices like ten other characters, like he voices Zoidberg and uh, mm-hmm. and the professor and all that stuff. So like, obviously he's indispensable as well. But it's just Bender's the iconic voice. I feel like on that show, of course, yeah. So hopefully they figure that out because that is like my favorite show, and I would love to see it come back. I need to give that show another shot. I had not seen it. Then I started Disenchantment. Really enjoyed it. Went back and started watching Futurama, and it just didn't click with me. I don't know what it was. Didn't catch me the way other shows have. I need to give it another fair shot, though, because I know I would like it. And I've seen a million memes from Futurama, which I've really enjoyed. It's just the writers are so intelligent on it. Like, there's literally a mathematical theorem that the writers of Futurama came up with as a bit on Futurama. It's a real thing. There's, like, this mind-switching episode where they, like, posit that no matter how many... Because the, the rules of the like brain switching thing was like, you can't be switched back directly. Like if you and I switch brains, we couldn't switch back. We would have to use another person. Okay. So they created a mathematical equation that solved that like no matter how many people you switch in that way, you can fix everybody with no more than two people. So no more than two external people. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's just like, it's weird shit like that. (laughs) They just like, I think the writing team are, like some of them are, like I got into comedy writing, but I was a mathematician Mm -hmm. (laughs) type stuff. But it's just cool that there's tidbits like that on the show because it's a sci-fi show and they joke when they're clearly fucking up the laws of physics and stuff on the show. Like they make jokes about it because they, they, the writers, know. That's one of the things that got me in a recent meme that I saw with Futurama. Like, it's obviously not quite as intelligent as that, but Bender was like going to go through a wood door and he's like, I'll just bend the door open. They're like, wood doesn't bend. He's like, I don't know. Door looks pretty stupid. And you see him like bending the wood door. And yeah, I don't know. It's funny. It's, it's very funny how many times Bender applies bending to things that aren't bending just to say that he can do them. I love that. Anything else you wanted to catch the uh, folks at home up on? No, I think that's about it for me. All right, because I got banger after banger. First of all, let's talk about this movie that I just found on HBO Max. A while ago on Zone of Truth, I think it was one of our live episodes, we did a My Favorite Monster on the Wendigo. Mm -hmm. Underrepresented creature in horror. I found a Wendigo horror movie? That's pretty okay. Oh. Don't tell Haley. She'll hear this in a couple of days anyway. But okay. uh, after our conversation yesterday, I went and I bought the complete set. Which includes the Wendigo. She's going to be so She's pissed. Gonna be pissed. Yeah. Go on. All right. It's a movie called Antlers. And it has... Oh, what the hell is his name? Why did I even start talking about someone if I can't remember his name? It's got somebody from Breaking Bad in it. I don't really remember who, but he's in there. Okay. And I don't know. I watched it this week. It's like a solid B minus B horror movie. Not like a B movie, but like on a grading scale around a B. It's just fine. But on the Wendigo curve, that hits it up to like an A because those movies don't exist. Yeah, they aren't very good. Yeah, it's on a curve. But it's pre- like if you For want a Wendigo to- movie. It's exactly. Movie. Yeah. yeah. If you want to see like a good Wendigo horror movie, check out Antlers on HBO Max. It's awesome. Was 
the ritual kind of a Wendigo movie. I feel like that had like a Wendigo-esque monster at the end of it. Which one's the ritual? It's the one, I think I have the correct title. It's the one where like four guys go on a hiking trip uh, as like, I think like the bachelor party or yeah, something. Yeah, but, I've seen this. I don't think it was a Wendigo movie. It might it's, have it's been a like Wendigo, Sweden but it was like, but it was like a woods deity yes. or something that I remember having like antlers at the end. It was some sort of, yeah, like primal or face spirit. I would assume that was a good one too. I like yeah. that movie. We've also got I, I've been going crazy. I've been, I'm in season three of True Blood, but I've realized that I can't just mainline seven seasons of that back to back, or I just will lose my mind. Yeah, so in between seasons, I can't I, okay I just ahead. I have to interject here I can't yeah. believe you're watching that solo I can't yeah. like I can't, that is such a fun show to watch with other people but you're right it would drive me nuts watching it solo because there's so many laughable moments that I just feel like I want to like have other people in the room to be like are you fucking seeing this yeah man I have those moments by myself I'll be like, whoa, I can't believe that happened. I will speak that out loud <laughs> to an empty room because it is so wild. Yesterday, because I'm working from home, I took 20 minutes to eat lunch and watch half an episode of True Blood in the middle of my workday. And this episode ends with two vampires fucking quite passionately. And the male vampire that's pounding away grabs the female's head, turns it 180 degrees and they just both keep pounding away at each other. And that was my lunch. Yeah. Like, and that's like the sex scenes in that show. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty fucking wild. So I had to take a little break. I needed a nice little palate cleanser. So I watched season one of True Detective, mm-hmm. which is not a palate cleanser. No, I was going to say, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, less maybe wild undead sex. Less of that to be sure. It was one of the best seasons of television I've ever seen. Have you seen it, Griffin? I haven't. I've heard really good things about the first season and pretty much only the first season. Yeah, I don't think I'm watching season two or three because they're completely unrelated. It's like an American Horror Story thing, apparently. But I really suggest you watch this show, man. It is some of the best acting I have ever seen on a television show. It's spearheaded by Woody Harrelson and Matt McConaughey. And honestly, before I watched this... I didn't really get either of them. I, they're just like famous. I didn't. I never thought they were incredible actors. They're just kind of famous actors, and the two of them, phenomenal performances. Which is kind of funny because they're both movie actors. Yeah, they're not, they're not. At least without knowing True Detective or anything, mm-hmm. I I don't really associate them with television acting. No, no, no. But they bring it so hard, and the show is dark. It's incredibly nihilistic it's not an easy show to watch it's very rough bleak 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 is a very good word for it but it delves a little bit into sort of the lovecraftian mythos there's a bunch of references to a related to the hlp deity that i won't mention because i don't want to spoil anything but it's not like lovecraft country or I'm trying to think of some other examples like color more like culty references. Okay. It's this cult that's operating in the background and there's allusions to it. So I know you're not a big fan of Lovecraft, but I think this is a digestible version of that for for someone like you. It's not like, Hey, the creature 
like somebody sees the creature and goes insane. It's right. like we're tracking a cult that's like operating around this thing. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what the thing is. Yes. So I don't want to say anymore just so I don't spoil it for you or anybody else listening. I, I know, just, but yeah, just don't, don't spoil the out. listeners. Just check it out. It's really good. And then my final recommendation. I went to the theater to go see a movie with Brooks and Emily on a Friday night. I snuck in a bunch of beers. We saw Moonfall. Griffin, let me tell you, easily top 10 good, bad movies. Yeah. Easy. Potential top five. Wow. The moon is falling to the earth and people realize that the crazy conspiracy theorists that think the moon is hollow are correct. And I don't even know where to start. How many times like a tree will fall on someone and the moon is rising over the horizon and they're like, just wait, I can't move the tree. But when the moon gets overhead, the gravity will be a little lower. The moon will help us lift the tree. Oh my God. There's full scenes that take place inside Alexis showroom. At one point, they're out running destruction on planet Earth in this Lexus. And one of the characters says, time to kick it up in a warp speed. And you see like a shot of the dashboard and he leans over and moves it from eco mode to sport mode. Oh God. <laughs> the Lexus like ramps up. <laughs> the, this like earthquake is destroying the crust of the earth and he like ramps up over it in the Lexus sport mode. It's so good. Nice Lexus product placement yeah. there. We gotta watch this thing when it comes back around. Like, is it like is it like a hurricane heist style thing? It's hurricane heist, but like the but, moon instead of a storm. Yes, but with a with a higher budget, and it's a lot a higher budget. Than oh her, yeah, I can't believe this concept has a higher budget. Than oh, hurricane absolutely. Heist. I mean, it's Rowan Emmerich, man. He did like 2012 and Day After Tomorrow and stuff. I didn't think those had a very high budget either. I guess uh-huh. they did. They're, I mean, they're they're big blockbuster movies, man, but. Moonfall. You guys gotta see it. I can't say enough good about Moonfall. It sounds very dumb, the concept, so... Oh, get wasted, get your friends, put on Moonfall, you're gonna have a good time. Does, like, the hollow moon piece come into play? Absolutely. Do they go into the moon? I don't want to spoil anything, Uh, but of course they do. What's in the moon? Of course they do. Oh, oh boy. It's good. It's really, really good. But we got to get into the main meat of this episode. And today we are talking all about vampires. What we're going to be doing is talking a little bit about the standard vampire chassis. So where it sits in folklore today, as well as mechanically what vampires look like in Pathfinder. Then we're going to dive into the five different variants of vampires that we were able to find, and they are really, really cool. So let's just go get started. Your standard vampire, not going to spend too much time here explaining to you all what a vampire is. You know, it's a undead creature. The cool thing that I found out when I was researching this is that it's almost this parallel school of thought, like pyramids were built all over the world at the same time, right? All these different cultures started legends about vampires or vampire adjacent creatures that all are sort of similar. A lot of this was popularized in the 1800s, but there was a lot of mass hysteria in the Balkans and Eastern Europe 
These are fears and misunderstandings around death and decomposition. So why does somebody who died's body look a lot less decayed than somebody else's? Or there is a lot of fears about premature burial and people trying to claw their way out of their coffin when they're not dead. Also, there's these diseases like rabies that make people behave in strange ways that can be to an unlearned person appear to be some sort of creature that's not human. But if we're talking about your standard day-to-day charismatic and sophisticated vampire, that concept was developed largely due to stories from the likes of John Polidari in The Vampire, vampire spelled with a Y, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. These are both written during the 1800s, and from there, the rest is history. So that's where you get your true bloods and your twilights and your underworlds. It all kind of stems from these first few tales, taking these undead folklore legends, kind of standardizing them, and then the rest is history. That's all I'll say about standard vampires. I'm not going to talk about garlic or mirrors or any of that nonsense, because Griffin, I want to hear a little bit about what the vampire chassis looks like in Pathfinder. Sure. Well, in Pathfinder, the standard vampire is intelligent undead, much like in folklore, feeds off the blood of the living in order to prolong its unnatural life. And in Galarian, vampirism is considered a curse, although, you know, those that are inflicted with it kind of see it as a two-sided thing. Mm -hmm. There are stages of vampirism in Pathfinder, so your traditional vampire would call themselves full-blooded, but... When they inflict vampirism on someone else, they become their spawn. So a vampire spawn is considered a lesser denotation of vampire among their hierarchy. And then the bottom of their hierarchy would be vampires, which are, for all intents and purposes, just humanoids with vampire blood in their lineage that kind of react to something similarly to vampires, but aren't actually vampires. Sure. On Galarian... All types of vampires share a common ancestor called the Strigoi, who came from the Plane of Shadow. The Whispering Way believes that a necromancer opened a portal to bring the Strigoi to Galarian. And although the original Strigoi don't exist, they either died out or evolved into one of the current ones, their impact kind of ripples into all the types of vampires that we're going to talk about. The next to evolve were the Nosferatu, uh, and and so on and so forth. And now the more accepted, most prevalent version of a vampire is the Maroi, I, I think is how, how we sure. would say it. But vampires on Galarian have all kinds of, like they have their own deities. The demon lord Zora is the deity of vampires, is the vampire queen. They would also follow deities like Zankuthan, you know, the, in inflicting pain, many members of the Umbral Court are vampires. The nation of Nadal has a ton of vampires because cities like Pangalay are under an eternal shroud of shadow, which allows vampires to operate at all hours. Yeah. Ergothoa, obviously the goddess of undeath, is a patron to vampires. Also, Lorcan, the infernal duke of hell, is associated with vampires. And Ruithvin is the blood emperor of hell. There's a couple other like Tien and, and otherwise deities that are less common that are associated with vampires. It's, it's strange. A lot of vampires worship Callistra 
because of like that kind of vengeance, uh, sadistic little streak she has, even though she's not an evil deity. Sure. But the standard vampire is a CR9 creature. Well, the sta- I say the standard. They're usually like a sorcerer in a stat block. Vampire is always a, a template. And so when you pull a vampire out of a bestiary, mm-hmm. it has classes. It's like a class human with a vampire template. Oh, so you're not just going to have a vampire. It will be a vampire something. Right. So literally the vampire in the bestiary is a female human vampire sorcerer eight. Ah, gotcha. Right. But the stuff that a vampire gives you is pretty standard. So you get blood drain, which allows you to suck the blood from a grappled opponent, dealing 1d4 points of con damage. Vampire heals five hit points or gains five temporary hit points for one hour. They have changed shapes, so standard vampires can change shape into a dire bat or a wolf. They have children of the night, which is an ability that allows them to summon rat swarms or wolves or bat swarms uh, in order to aid them. They can usually do that once per day. They have the create spawn ability, which is what it is on the tin. If they kill somebody with blood drain, they become a vampire spawn, Mm -hmm. which is a thrall under the domination of the higher vampire and so that's why spawns are viewed as lesser in society a vampire can choose to allow their spawn to ascend to full vampirehood so make them a full vampire essentially but if they haven't then that spawn has like the some of the strengths and some of the drawbacks of a vampire without being fully in either world are the vampires spawn undead themselves you said they they are killed yeah they're undead Um, but they have like less of the vampire strengths and they're not as affected by like sunlight and stuff. So they're not immediately destroyed so they can kind of do the vampires bidding. Sure. Uh, they have a dominate ability, which, uh, you see time and time again with vampires. It's, it's a dominate person and it's like at caster level 12 for a standard vampire. Which is pretty strong. Their hits deal energy drains, so they deal negative levels if they slam you. They have a gaseous form, which they can either choose to do at will, which they enter gaseous form as the spell, or they enter this form when you reduce them to zero hit points, and then they move towards their coffin at 10 feet per round. If they can get to their coffin within an hour, they reform there and begin to rejuvenate at one hit point per minute i believe until they're at a certain level and then they're back up they're shadowless they don't have a shadow they have constant spider climb and so yeah they're pretty cool because they're always paired with something so no two vampires you fight are going to be the same because any good gm is gonna say well they're clearly not all sorcerers i'm gonna put something different right this This sorcerer works really well because like most undead when a vampire dies its health is no longer determined by its con it's determined by its charisma so if you have a high charisma class it really helps there vampires gain dr10 to magic and silver they resist cold 10 and electricity 10 the template adds a bunch to their stats which i won't really get into but it's like any other template it's like hey you're getting like plus four charisma and plus you know across the board there and then they get weaknesses So every vampire has weaknesses. It depends on the type, as we'll get into, which determines their weaknesses. But vampires are hungry, and that hunger imposes penalties as a vampire does not feed. Mm -hmm. 
So it, it kind of makes them like have to actively resist feeding on the living. Like you have to roll will saves and that kind of thing. So a vampire can go a number of days equal to its hit dice without its preferred meal. Each day past this grace period, they must make a will save equal to 10 plus half their hit dice plus one for each previous check. If it fails, it enters withdrawal, begins to take penalties according to the withdrawal penalties table, which tables on tables on tables. They also get bonuses based off of feeding. They get a resistance bonus to saves against spell effects. They get resistance bonuses to will saves for an hour, but their penalties are kind of severe. Like their failed hunger saves, the first one you fail, your channel resistance goes down by one, your will saves go down by two, your strength and charisma each go down by one, your DR goes down by two, your fast healing goes down by one, and your disguise skill goes down by two. Those continue to get worse. Oh, wow. As, as you fail them up to like a minus 10 to your strength and charisma after you've failed a significant number of hunger checks. That's no joke. Yeah, so the hunger is a real thing <laughs> for them, which is a little bit stronger, I think, than the corruption mechanics we use for a lot of things. Like, Air Bear clearly has, like, a hunger mechanic going on, but it's weekly, <laughs> and it's like, oh, you failed this, you lash out in a weird way, and you're good. It's not really like, hey, you take a mechanical minus 10 to your strength and charisma, which, by the way, controls your health. Yeah. So that's vampires on the 10. I think the only thing I didn't mention is they get a uh, fast healing five. Great. All right. Well, I heard a couple names as we were going through this. So I know I have things laid out in my agenda slightly different than I want to run through it now. So let's talk about the Maroi vampires real quick. Absolutely. I was doing my homework on these guys. I found that they have basis in Romanian legend and are not necessarily vampires. They can be a vampire-like creature or something closer to a spirit or a ghost. Depending on what source you look at, the different sources are divided on what a Maroi actually is or how they're made. Some say that they are the offspring of mating between a human woman and a male Nosferatu vampire. And we're about to talk about that soon, but those are the more traditional vampires that you might be familiar with. Or, and this is why my ears perked up a little bit when I heard this word, to Strigoi, which based on my limited research on that also seems similar to today's interpretation vampires, sophisticated, charismatic, you have it. The thing about Maroi is that in legend, when you're comparing them to something like a Nosferatu or a Strigoi, they tend to be a little uglier. Some sources say that although they may have been born of vampire, they are actually potentially mortal. And some sources say that they are covered in hair. Huh. Don't know if that means head to toe, front to back, side to side, but that's kind of how I interpreted it. So that's weird. Uh, like I said in the beginning, though, they are sometimes uh, interpreted based on the legend as a vampire or a ghost. So if we're talking about a Maroi ghost, this is a spirit who rises from the grave to draw life essence from the living. So maybe not a traditional, I want to suck your blood vampire, but certainly thematically similar, at least. Griffin, what's a Maroi vampire in Pathfinder? 
They are the most common type of vampire in the inner sea region, and actually the vampire stat block is a Maroi vampire. Oh, sure. So they, okay. they differ not at all from that original vampire template, and when you speak of a vampire, you're speaking of a Maroi in Galarian for the most part. They, like all vampires, descended from the Strigoi, but it's kind of funny that you mentioned they're the least beautiful. They're considered the most beautiful vampires. They're they're your Cullens, okay. are the are the Maroi yeah. in Pathfinder lore. They're actually an offshoot of the Nosferatu, who were the first to evolve from the Strigoi. The Nosferatu are very bestial, as we'll get into, and the Maroi represented a divergence from that bestial instinct-based habit of the vampires and they began to feed on the most beautiful and the most youthful like beautiful traditionally charismatic of humanoids Mm -hmm. and that began their evolution towards what they are now which is the most charismatic the most beautiful of vampires because vampires don't reproduce like we do they natural selected themselves to be beautiful and so Everything you talk about with a traditional vampire, including their weaknesses, applies to Maroi. We'll find that, like, that doesn't apply to all the other types of vampires, which is very strange. But you would kill a Maroi by exposing it to sunlight, staking it immobilizes it, you would decapitate it, or, like, leave it under running water. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They shrink back at good-aligned holy symbols, that kind of thing. But they represent, like, something like 70 or 80 percent of the vampires on Galarian, and it's interesting that they represent a lot of humanoid vampires as well. Like in the Mwangi, it's known that lizard folk become Maroi vampires, the and and you know they're not selected by the same beauty standards as a human Maroi vampire is, sure. they're kind of like size and uh, and power, and so they're very feared in the Mwangi, the Maroi Eruxi. But it's uh, it's interesting how that's that seems very different from the traditional story of them. Very interesting. All right. I think I might have another one that differs pretty substantially here. Let's talk about Nosferatu. So this one was weird for me because I had heard this term Nosferatu. And until I did my homework for this episode... I always thought Nosferatu was one specific vampire, kind of like Dracula, because I had heard that it was a, a movie and I just assumed it was like right. Dracula. So Nosferatu seems to be a Romanian catch-all term for what we would consider the generic Western vampire. So sophisticated, you're charismatic, you suck blood, you have bat-like tendencies, you live in a coffin. Though, interestingly enough... In the 18th and 19th century, when this vampire panic that I mentioned before started to take hold and some Western cultures started reporting on these fears and these folklore legends from Eastern European countries, they kept referring to a type of vampire called the Nosferatu, but apparently there are no primary sources from Romania of that word being used. So there is a lot of 
discourse and disagreement over where that name actually came from. People think it might be like a bastardization of a Romanian word or a phrase or something. But if you look in Romanian folklore, you're not going to find Nosferatu, even though people say that a Nosferatu is a Romanian vampire. So there certainly are vampires in Romanian culture and folklore, but this particular term doesn't seem to be one that they actually used. But these secondary sources still portray them in a very specific way. So they mention these type of vampires as having shape-shifting powers. This sounds a lot like what you're mentioning with them shifting into bats or wolves. They were probably undead. And a lot of them had incubi or succubi motivations or incubi or succubi type motivations. So they want to like bang people and cause strife. They sucked blood. These are things that these secondary sources say that the vampires did. This legend building around this type of vampire seems to be the origin of staking through the heart and decapitation stuffing the mouth with garlic as effective forms of combating and destroying these undead. So a lot of these superstitions and frankly cliches that we have in the vampire subgenre of horror today come from these legends of Nosferatu. It's just surprising and interesting to me that as far as I could tell, the people who this is based around really didn't say Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Yeah, that is strange. What you got on them? Well, they are the most primitive form of vampire, and they are considered the most cursed. And that's because while they are granted this immortality by the curse, they still suffer the ravages of time. Oh, that's horrible. So these are your underworld oldest count, like the count from what we do in the shadows, Mm -hmm. those vampires that are thousands of years old that start to look like wrinkled, almost desiccated corpses. Yeah. That is the Nosferatu. They're forced to age, and so they're bitter, and they're ferocious, and they are concerned most with things that actually require aging to accomplish. So unlike the forever youthful Moroi, they study living things. They're the only type of vampire that's willing to prey on animals. They have this kind of bestiality to them, but also this strange wisdom because they are the oldest that gives them just a completely different outlook. Like they wouldn't be members of like a vampire council. They wouldn't believe in a council. They wouldn't structure themselves that way. Oh, interesting. They have this like strange duality where like they suffer the ravages of time. So they feel urgency, which is kind of part of their bestial nature they have this like urgent need to get things done that other vampires don't feel but when we talk about their stat block and how they're different they actually get telekinetic ability so the Maroi vampires can use telekinesis at caster level 12 do you mean Nosferatu? yeah the the Nosferatu and telepathy so they can read minds they can move objects with their mind and they are killed the same way that Maroi vampires are. However, they cannot turn to gaseous form. They can only become a swarm. That's their only means of escape. So they can become trapped like an animal, much more so than 
the Maroi vampires, so they're much more calculating and careful. So when you defeat a Nosferatu, becomes like it a becomes swarm a swarm. Okay, got you. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. They are particularly influenced by garlic, which I think you had mentioned. They also recoil from mirrors, which the Maroi didn't really. However, the holy symbol thing still works for them. That's kind of it's kind of their vibe. Okay. Yeah, seems a little bit more primitive and primal. I thought it was crazy that they age. Yeah. But I had actually learned about this when I built Garrity because he was a Nosferatu-born vampire. Oh, interesting. So vampires have... They pick a lineage. They pick a lineage. Okay. I've never played one before. Different ability score bonuses, kind of like a tiefling heritage would. Oh, sure. Uh, That I have. And it it also gives them different like spell-like abilities and stuff that are thematic to what these vampires can do. I should mess around with that in Hero Lab. That'd be fun to check out. Learn a little bit about this stuff. Okay, so those are your more Western traditional vampires. I want to start talking about some of the real interesting stuff now. Let's talk about a Jiangxi vampire. So in real life, a Jiangxi vampire is also known as a Chinese hopping vampire. I started reading this. I didn't know a lot about Jiangxi vampires, and I fell in love with this creature. It might be my favorite on the list immediately. So this is a similar type of creature to your traditional Western vampire from ancient Chinese culture that hops around stealing the life essence of people and hiding in caves or coffins during the day. The origin of this is probably about the 1700s. So you might go on, Steve, what are they doing hopping around? Well, you got to understand the origin of the legend here. So Zhang, the word J-I-A-N-G, my apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, translates to stiff. This is in reference to rigor mortis, something that a body goes through when it dies. So in Chinese history, when folks died far from home, it was important for their bodies to be brought back to their hometown for proper burial. And if you were poor, you would have these Taoist priests transport your loved one's body home to where they would be buried. And the way that they would transport the body is that they would have a few priests with bamboo poles strung between the two of them, and the body was strung up on said poles. Bamboo is a flexible wood. Mm -hmm. So as they walked, these bodies would appear to bounce or hop. Oh. Yeah. So... Uh, I'm very excited to talk about why that happens. <laughs> Let's. I can't wait because this is so fucking cool. Traditionally, if we're talking about Jiangxi vampires in Chinese culture, they are described as having greenish skin. This is probably because as bodies decay, they look kind of green. We've talked about this with the Horsemen of Death in a previous episode of the Zone of Truth. Yeah, like the pale horse is not actually pale. Exactly. They're often portrayed with a paper spell or like a a piece of paper that has a spell written on it attached to the forehead. And they're dressed in the garb of a Mandarin or AKA a Chinese official during the Qing dynasty. So what is a Zhangxi vampire in folklore? This is a spirit that inhabits a body that was not buried despite a funeral taking place. So you had your funeral, body didn't make it into the ground. The spirit wanders the earth. 
A Shang-Chi vampire can also be created if a black or pregnant cat jumps across the body's coffin, or the Hun and Poe get out of alignment. I didn't really know what this was, so I looked it up. Hun and Poe is this tradition of soul dualism, where the Hun or good ethereal soul leaves the body after death, but the Poe, the part of the soul that's more attached to the body stays behind and controls it. It remains after death and walks it around and does bad things. It shouldn't control the body, but it does. So some pretty interesting ways that a Zhang-Chi vampire can be made. How do you fight it? Well, they have some pretty interesting ways to fight the vampire. Yeah. (laughs) So you reflect light at it using an eight-sided mirror. Why an eight-sided mirror? I'm not really sure, but I just thought that was an interesting detail. You write a spell out in chicken's blood on paper and attach it to their forehead, or you throw sticky rice at them to draw out the evil from the uh, Zhangxi vampire's body. I also like that they get scared of roosters, because if they hear a rooster, they know the sun's coming up and they got to get back underground. So they don't like roosters. Oh. Yeah. Year of the Rooster must be pretty rough for him. Yeah, so yeah. we hear that shit. All right, man. I really, in particular, liked reading about Shang-Chi vampires, but I don't know much about them in Pathfinder. What do you got for me, Griff? So they're also known as hopping vampires in Pathfinder. There we go. They feed off of ki, the energy of living creatures. They inhale their breath, essentially, so it's not like a blood-sucking thing like normal vampires were. Mm-hmm. But I had to talk about this because you mentioned the like rigidity of like the bamboo. Yeah. So Jiangxi are also a little bit different. They retain their youth like a Maroi vampire, but they are impacted by rigor mortis. And this oh, rigor sure. mortis yeah. creates a stiffness and also a springiness. Mm-hmm. And so they cannot move normally. They have to move through hopping because they have experienced partial rigor mortis. And so they move very like jerkily. There you go, Paizo. You got a fist figured out. Yeah, very cool <laughs> way to kind of work that in. Does that like affect their move speed or something? They can only move in 10 foot jumps. There you go. Yeah. But as far as their history, they actually branched off when the Maroi did. They went into hibernation. The reason for this isn't clear, but they return millennia later starving and half mad because they hadn't eaten. And so for them, hunger is the most driving factor and allowed them to consume life essence out of breath instead of blood. It's also why they are particularly impacted by their former mortal food. So rice is a deterrent for these vampires and can be used to kill them. A Jiangxi in Pathfinder lore is created when a restless spirit stays in its corpse after death, which decays until Jiangxi rises from its grave to seek living prey. They're terrified of mirrors, like you said, the sound of a handbell, and then obviously the cooked rice, which uh, is noted, mocks the Jiangxis by reminding them that they can no longer eat. And because hunger is their biggest thing, it also harms them. They prefer darkness and try to avoid sunlight, but unlike Maroi, they're not harmed by sunlight. I think that's in line, too. I could be wrong about this, but I didn't read anything of them being affected negatively in Chinese traditions by sunlight. They just don't like it. Yeah, they just don't like it. This is wild. So they get that prayer scroll, that Mm -hmm. spell scroll. That's 
on every Jiangxi vampire's forehead. Okay. It grants them immunity to any effects generated from spell completion or spell trigger magic items such as scrolls or wands. Oh, so they that's affect the Jiangxi as if, it, if, as if it had unbeatable spell resistance. So you can't target them with a, a scroll or a wand spell, huh. or even like a, a staff. If its scroll were destroyed, it would lose its fast healing ability. It has the same fast healing as other vampires. <laughs> but they get this drain key, which is instead of draining blood, they drain key. And when they make a successful grapple check, they can attempt to drain it. By drinking the victim's breath, the victim, instead of getting the Condrain, suffers a negative level and is staggered for 1d4 rounds. And they get more potent claws than regular vampires, so it improves their crit range and their ability to grab and that kind of thing. A Jiangxi, to be destroyed, it well, when they reach zero hit points, they crumble to dust instead of the other kind of methods. And reform in one minute with one hit point in the same exact space, if nothing happens, but scattering the dust before they reform permanently destroys them, as does mixing rice into the dust with a dose of holy water. This is weird. So they are particularly susceptible to wooden weapons carved from peach trees. Oh, oh, that is, that is a real thing. Is it? Yes. I can't remember why, but I remember reading about peach trees and they don't like the wood from peach trees it represents in pathfinder at least the unity of all elements in life to these creatures and so a weapon carved from a peach tree automatically bypasses their damage reduction a successful hit from a weapon reduces a to zero hit points immediately destroys a creature and yeah they don't have that sunlight blindness but they can only move in 10 foot jumps so their base speed is reduced by 10 feet because they're going vertical. Mm-hmm. It also allows them to ignore all difficult terrain, and they are impossible to trip. That's kind of cool. Very cool take, I think, mechanically on something that yeah. that is very different to our traditional thought of a vampire from like European sources. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think this back half of talking about vampires gets interesting. I mean... Maroi, Nosferatu, whatever. Heard it all before. Yeah, heard it all before. But then we start getting into this really interesting stuff from these folk legends that I really, really love. So let's talk about the next one, the Vitala. So these are vampire-like creatures from Hindu mythology, but are not actually called vampires. They are spirits that are said to haunt charnel grounds and are said to be knowledgeable fortune tellers. So... First of all, I had to look up what a charnel ground was. I didn't really know. These are open air areas where corpses are left to decompose. So it's kind of an alternate take on interring somebody in the ground or cremation. Mm -hmm. Let the body decompose and then I assume do something with the skeleton. There's, aside from the grounds, there's like a charnel house. Yes. And those are kind of like, unlike a mausoleum where Mm -hmm. you're kind of like put into... I don't know. It almost feels like a little like slot, yeah. right? It's a house constructed that's still kind of open air for bodies to decompose in, to kind of contain some. Like, mm-hmm. You know, unless you build a charnel ground like real far away from other people, you're gonna smell that shit. That's what I want to be done with my body, left outside. Yeah, just just let it decompose. See what happens. Yeah. All right. So this is kind of interesting. When we're talking about a Vitala, we really should be talking more about the spirit than the physical form itself, because 
They are spirits that inhabit corpses and use them for movement. But unlike other vampires, the spirits are not tied to that specific body. So they can leave that body and inhabit others. These are spirits that are stuck in between life and the afterlife. They can be vanquished by successfully performing the funerary rites that they need to move on. Now, what's really cool about a Vitala, or at least the stories about them in Hindu mythology, is that they're said to be unaffected by space and time and have vision across all of time as this crazy spirit. So there are apparently lots of stories of sorcerers and people that have connection to magic who try and trap Vitala because they know the future and they can use that knowledge to their benefit. What do Vitala like to do? They like to cause trouble for the living. I'm not entirely sure why, but they like to try and drive people mad, kill children, cause miscarriages, and then just do all sorts of malfeasance. But again, not a vampire in the traditional sense that, or at least in the sense that we're familiar with, but a really, really interesting undead creature that does share a lot of similarities with what we call a vampire. So what do you got, Griff? So Vitala are the breed of vampire native to Vudra in Pathfinder, which is the India analog. They feed on the creative consciousness or psyche in Vudrani that's called Prana, and that might be drawn from what it is in India. Mm Mm-hmm. They're particularly drawn to those with like a great force of will, like creatives, or those that are destined for greatness. There's some mixed takes on where they come from, even in the Pathfinder lore. Some believe they are said to be the spirits of children that are born evil, who never receive burial rites upon their deaths. Sometimes one of these evil spirits takes hold of a corpse, not necessarily its own, which becomes its anchor to the mortal world. Such young souls seek out experiences and life energy, which is why they seek out those, like, the mentality of others, becoming as wicked as any other vampire, but, you know, indulging different desires. Other sources say that Vitala, like all other vampires, come from the Strigoi, but they took it a step further from where the Maroi took it, which, you know, they were kind of like... Well, we want to only feed on the beautiful. And the Vitala were like, we don't want to feed on lesser beings. And that's what humanity is. This is unclean blood of these lesser beings. It was it was indignant to even consider feeding on these things that were lesser than them. So their abstinence from blood nearly killed them, but taught them to feed from others' minds, which cool. made them become the Vitala. But boy, this template, dude. This template is cool. So to destroy them, it's different for all these vampires. If you consecrate the Vitala's remains and bury the body, it destroys it forever. So that's kind of like the concept of it not having been buried. And it's considered consecrated if it's doused with holy water and buried, if it's buried in earth affected by the spell consecrate, or if blessed prayer or a similar divine spell is cast upon it, digging up a Vitala's corpse or profaning the area it's buried however does not restore a buried Vitala they get the ability instead of drain blood drain prana 
which allows them to drain the mental vitality of a grappled opponent. Uh, so this is draining charisma, so they do 1d4 points of charisma damage. Additionally, the victim is affected by the spell Modify Memory, as if the Vitala had spent five minutes concentrating. Okay. The Vitala gains perfect knowledge of any memory it chooses to eliminate using this ability, and they often use this ability to prevent victims from remembering they've been attacked. They have a supernatural ability, timely, called Malevolence. Oh no! As a full-round action, a Vitala can attempt to take control of a helpless living creature's body as the spell Magic Jar. So this is what we talked about, about their soul jumping body to body. Yeah, yeah. Except it doesn't require a receptacle. The target can resist the attack with a successful will save. A creature that successfully saves is immune to the Vitala possession, but if it fails its save, its consciousness and control of the body are subsumed by the Vitala that takes control. The Vitala can remain in control for a number of hours equal to its charisma modifier or until it decides to end the possession. When the possession ends or the host body is killed, the Vitala's consciousness instantly returns to its own body regardless of distance so long as it remains on the same plane and if the Vitala's body had been destroyed or moved to another plane its consciousness is destroyed when the possession ends its claws paralyze so that it can make use of this malevolent ability and it's got a possess corpse ability so as a full round action a Vitala can possess a larger smaller corpse just as it can a living body it animates the corpse as either a skeleton or a zombie, and the Vitala can remain in the control of this corpse indefinitely and can communicate through the body, but can't use any of its other special abilities. Just a really cool take on on those abilities, man. On, on that stuff that is like very much in the lore, in the real world lore of this creature. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's them. That's really cool. I, I like that. We had our regulars, right? We got our Maroi. We got our Nosferatu in there. Interesting enough. But then I feel like the Jiangshi and the Vitala really brought it, both in IRL awesomeness and interestingness. I'm bad at words, whatever. But also the way that the traditions were adapted for the Pathfinder templates and rule set. I really like how they pulled it off. Really creatively done. Yeah. I think Chris had said the Jiangshi vampires, because he ran some in Tui, mm-hmm. like if, if the person that's getting their key drained actually has key spells, they can spend a focus point to, instead of taking the penalty of getting their key drained, they spend the focus point and that's what the Jiangshi vampire drained. Oh my God. So they so even perfect. added like cool mechanics like that in Tui. It's very thoughtfully done. I would love to see these different vampire subtypes explored in a show like what we do in the shadows because i think i think that shows comedy enough where they would very like goofily kind of encounter the differences with these other vampires and be like what do you mean you don't drink blood what do you mean you know what do you mean you can go out in the sun well it's funny you bring up what we do in the shadows (laughs) is it because the final type of vampire we're about to talk about there's only one example that we need to bring to the table to explain exactly what this is. This is the psychic vampire. And my first note, this is Colin Robinson. Colin Robinson. Colin Robinson. Which I thought when I watched what we do in the shadows before doing this research was just a joke that they did. I thought it was just like, Oh no, it's no, I did not realize this was a real thing that, people believe in energy or psychic vampires that instead of sucking blood 
just take your positive feelings and your emotions and your will to live instead of your life essence. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's what I wrote. This is Colin Robinson. So this is a creature that draws life force from a victim in a way like we just described, but this also can be used as a term for people who get increased energy from being around other folks, but leaves those other people exhausted or drained of that energy. So not only is this a creature in the sense of it being a creature, but this is also a term that you can use on that person in your life that it just sucks being around because you feel drained after talking to them. And I think we all know somebody like that. So, all right. These are also known as emotional vampires or energy vampires. And the term psychic vampire itself was popularized in the satanic Bible. Really? Yes. Did not know that. Neither did I. I I mean, I didn't know any of this. So (laughs) take that with a grain of salt. But the author of the satanic Bible claims to have coined that term itself in which it describes a spiritually or emotionally weak person who sucks the life energy from it. So the term was coined by them. They didn't create a mythical Yeah, it wasn't like a, this isn't actually a psychic vampire. It was just like, this is how we describe a shitty, boring dude. Pretty much, yeah. So that's kind of what I have. It's unique from other entries on the list, which is why we saved it for last, because when we talk about a vampire and we think in either game mechanic or traditional terms, we're talking about an undead creature. We're talking about something that's typically nocturnal or likes to suck blood. And this is something a little bit more unique. It behaves in ways that the rest of the entrants on this list do not. And I'd love to hear how it behaves in Pathfinder. So in Pathfinder, they actually are undead. Hmm. But unlike vampires like the Nosferatu who feed on blood, psychic vampires hunger for the occult energy that fuels the spells of psychic spellcasters. Oh, okay, interesting. Some scholars confuse them with Vitala vampires, calling them Vitalarnas, and they steal a more refined form of spiritual energy, but psychic vampires consider Vitalas a dying bloodline as their own influence increases. They actually fight the Vitalas. They strike against their corpse-possessing kin with impunity. They're usually born when a creature with psychic potential dies in a state of denial, stubbornly clinging to the material world through sheer willpower, and as it dies, the creature attempts to draw on its own psychic energy and that of any living beings in order to cling to its mortal existence. It inevitably fails, but if its will is strong enough, it rises again. No longer able to sustain itself using its own mental energy, it hungers for the energy of others. Notably, they can't create spawn, So their numbers are relatively small right now, but a hungry psychic vampire, and I think this kind of goes along with the boring stuff, appears in shades of gray. But when it's gorged on psychic energy, it becomes flushed with natural colors again. Hmm. And if it's careful, it might pass for a living creature. Although sunlight doesn't harm psychic vampires, they avoid it because their unnatural grayness gives away their true nature. Anything religious has no effect on psychic vampires, except to amuse them. And psychic vampires who were religious in life might expect those practices to hold power over them in their undead state and react with fear, but they eventually learn that they can't be harmed that way. The only thing that scares psychic vampires is lack of victims. The home of a psychic vampire looks deceptively normal. 
Okay. Holding fresh food and other supplies that undead creatures don't need in abundant supply. The fresh food is more than a facade, however. The psychic vampires have it fed to their captives to keep their captives fit for use as possessed bodies and reserves of psychic energy. Hmm. Just like Colin Robinson, they keep people around to feed on them. Yeah. Psychically. Yeah. So, their weakness. So, all of these vampires so far have had a weakness. Actually, these have DR cold iron for whatever reason. Um, no idea. Yeah. In, instead of a regular vampire having DR silver. <laughs> they have difficulty tolerating any vocal expressions that deny their power or authority. Any character can force a psychic vampire to recoil by dramatically defying it verbally as a standard action. It doesn't harm the vampire. It merely keeps the psychic vampire at bay. Interesting. Yeah. So if you reduce them to zero, it doesn't always destroy it. However, they will like project their psyche to other things. So destroying an object possessed by a psychic vampire whose fast healing isn't functioning destroys a psychic vampire forever. They would essentially like project their psyche into objects and other things to keep themselves alive. <laughs> so their drain psyche ability. If you're hit by a psychic vampire slime attack, you take 1d4 points of ability drain to the highest of your mental scores, intelligence, wisdom, or charisma. And the psychic vampire gains a like number of temporary hit points of psychic energy. These PE points are in addition to the psychic vampire's current psychic energy total and subtract. There's, there's a whole psychic energy piece along with them. But psychic vampire attacks drain the target's memories like the Vitalas, which is why they seem similar two scholars on Galarian. They have a possession ability, which allows them to take control of a helpless living creature's body as per the spell possession, which you know is pretty powerful. Pretty good. <laughs> they can also possess an object. So this is how they like try not to die. They animate an object, essentially. And they get psychic magic. So they get a bunch of magic that is kind of counter... They're not counter, but unlike vampires that would get like spider climb and all that shit. They get a bunch of psychic spells. So they get burst of adrenaline, haste, mental block, spider climb, emotive block, mind thrust four, uh, <laughs> riding possession, synaptic scramble, synapse overload, telepathy, ego whip, and mass inflict pain as part of their, like that kind of scales through their hit die. They gain more and more as they have higher hit dice, but they're, um, they're definitely different. Wow. They really underpowered Colin Robinson in the show. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's intense. Well, no, because as people start to give him authority, if you remember that episode, he gets very strong. Oh, I guess that is true. I forgot. <laughs> when he becomes the boss, he gets very strong. Yep. So that's kind of how these are. I love them, man. They're, they're really cool. Yeah. All right, Griffin. Well, that was our tour through vampires. You like vampires? Yeah, I, th I thought yeah. that was very cool because Carrying Crown... Obviously, we're in Ashes at Dawn, the vampire book, and it does a really good job exploring your traditional vampires, but it doesn't really it's go It's gothic into, horror. Yeah, it doesn't... Gothic horror isn't really going to include psychic vampires and stuff, so it's kind of cool to read about all the different types that are out there. Yeah. I also had a lot of fun doing this. You know, I love diving into, you know, interesting folklore that I've never heard about before, so this was really cool. I'm glad we did it. I'm really excited for the rest of book five because... Who knows, man? You know I'm in a big vampire kick right now, so this is all hitting at the right time in my <laughs> adult life. Thought it might. 
But let's go ahead and move it on to the listener questions because we do have a few that I want to get through. We got some good ones here. This one comes from Fulgrim. So if you guys had to assign NPCs to the cast to play for a spinoff, who would get to play what? Bonus points for an idea on what kind of adventure these NPCs would have together. So I'm thinking this is like a Pavlos and Pales situation, right? Yeah, I'm thinking it's with NPCs that are out there. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting proposition because you play all the NPCs. Yeah. So you have yeah, to give away true. your babies. Mm-hmm. I think you've got a couple obvious ones, at least to me. I can see Brooks doing a great Seymour Wiener. Yeah. It's his brand of humor. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. Um, I also know that Haley had a lot of fun playing Sabriza in book three. Mm-hmm. Like that seems a pretty natural fit. Druid. Yeah. Druid. She loves doing that kind of stuff. I'm sad. So I could be the emo dude from book three, I guess. Okay. Corvin Turgsvor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good one. What would Emily play then? Hmm. What would? I'm trying to think of obscure NPCs because it's easy to say like uh, the mayor or some somebody everybody knows. Yeah. Ooh. What was? What was our hero or friend? Her name? Because that's pretty on the nose with Emily doing the Lyra harrowing stuff. From the crooked can. Yes. It, it was like a Z or an S name. Zajira. Zajira. That could work. Yeah, that could work. She probably already played her at some point. I gave you guys the stat blocks. Why would Emily have played such a Didn't I hand this? I don't know if she, she particularly had it, but remember I statted up Captain Caleb and Seymour and Sajira and gave it to you guys for the siege? Oh. Or maybe I didn't give wait, those no. to you guys, but they were fully statted up NPCs. They helped you guys on the siege in the courthouse. I don't. Th- I might I don't not have given think you guys. We the, had them, um, but I, they I, were there. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. So those are my ideas. I don't know if you had any encounters. I don't know what they would all be doing together. Well, um, I'll just tell you, this is a great idea that is going to be used in about 15 episodes. Ooh. Oh, we should. I, I've got an idea for that. We should talk about this. Because <laughs> we've talked a little bit already. Yeah. Remind me, there's something I want to talk to you about after this. Uh, I think I would put people in uncomfortable positions. So I would have Emily play Divian. I would have Haley play Duriston. I would have Brooks play the uh, what's his name? God, the um, what's something about him? He was the he was the leader of the lodge. I can't remember his name. Oh right now. shoot, that was another A, right? Uh, it might have been, but the guy Askinor. that yeah, Askinor Lodge. But yeah, what was his name? I don't know. I know who you're talking about. Yes, the uh, the guy that ran the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would make you uncomfortable? That's probably the hardest question. Not a lot. Yeah, there's not a lot that would. I'd have you play. Hmm, I don't know that that would make you uncomfortable. I was gonna say like the little girl spirit that Haley has. I could pull that off. Yeah, probably. I'd have you play the mayor, but in the brain jar. That way we could like turn you off. That would annoy you. Yeah, that would. <laughs> Those are my castings. I don't know All where right. they go. All right. Yeah, that was. You got me. <laughs> the only thing that you could uh, you could do to really make me uncomfortable is just to give you an off switch. Mechanically, give <laughs> mechanically me an off switch. Yeah, switch. Uh, that's pretty good. What do you think we do? Hang out? I don't know. I don't. Uh, I can't ever see that group of people being in one room together. TPK in book five, and that's the new party. It wouldn't work considering you know who Adivian is now. He's a double agent. He's a double agent. Working for both sides. Yep. 
All right. Next question comes from Thomas. Um, This is a little less conceptual and more just kind of a procedural thing. I'm a regular offender and I don't want to be annoying. So I guess I'll ask this here. How do you feel about listeners pointing out rules errors made on the show? Hmm. I think this is important because this has happened. We've made errors and people have called them out. I think I think uh, from my experience would be like, hey, make sure you fact check yourself before you start calling me out for missing something, because when you call me out, I'm certainly going to look it up. And if you're wrong, I'm going to call you out. Yeah. For calling me out. This is, this is like a really douchey phrase to say, and I don't mean it to be like a douche, but like, if you're coming at the king, don't miss. Right. And, and, I, and, 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 and we, like, we're not infallible at all, but like, no, don't call me out unless you're right yeah and if you are then that's awesome because that helps us move forward with the right ruling ping ping us in the discord there's something that happened in bestow curse i used an incapacitation type spell and i think in the episode we incorrectly say that keys off of your level but right, somebody spells it's like twice the spell level it's twice the spell level now that's extraordinarily helpful because in the future I am going to use that spell again, but it's going to be important for me to use it in the right context. So to that listener, I say thank you for pointing that out. Right, like, because that that's that's a whole nother conversation where it's like, there might be a circumstance where I actually want to heighten that spell because it works. 100%. It works off of spell level instead of like, hey, I can use this all the time as a level one spell or whatever. 100%. But then the listener that's like, I think Matumbe should have gotten a hit there. Like, no, dude, like I have this condition on Hero Lab that tells me what my AC is. You were incorrect. Yeah. Don't don't yeah. do that. Yeah, I mean there there's certainly there's certainly a bit of both. And I think specifically for like, you know, we're what? Just over twenty episodes into a Pathfinder 2E campaign. We've been playing first edition for a combined like thirty years. <laughs> oh, that's wild to say. We're all going to make mistakes because they named everything the fucking same and it works differently mm-hmm. so like that happens that's gonna happen we're we were one e purists for five years before we started playing two e yeah so we appreciate that because there are always those like preconceived notions of like like i, I almost envy the people that came from like five e to two e because they don't have any of that preconceived crap that we yeah. do about everything being named the same and how everything works i think the hardest transition you can make is from pathfinder first edition to pathfinder second edition and the most frustrating transition because everything is similarly named and works completely differently oh i have the same skill you do we're trying to make the same check i'm gonna aid another except this time it's a dc 20 and if i make it it's only a plus one but if i crit it's a plus two whereas opposed it was in one e a dc 10 for a plus two like well, right, and it's just assuming yeah. things like, hey, like, why would you change the splash rules? And we don't have an alchemist, so we never looked up the splash rules, yeah. right? But yes, they are different. Yeah. It's it's weird stuff like that that, again, we appreciate being called out on because it's going to make us get it right. And just so just that make sure of, you're right. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of stuff I don't mind, but especially when it's like, oh, your monster should have... It's like, I change the monsters pretty frequently, I don't think I've run anything as it's been in the book for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So don't at me about that shit. If you're reading through Carrying Crown and you think I ran something differently, like I did, it's not the same stat block. So certainly not against it. 
let's just make sure we're right and we do really actually appreciate the feedback because that makes us better players and better performers or like this is this is something that i actually would appreciate like if you're not sure you're right and you don't have the time to figure out you're right don't call me out in front of hundreds of people but dm me and be like hey i'm not sure if you got this right you might want to look into it sure that's much that's much better received by me to be like hey man i did look up look it up and that actually like helped me out by like looking it up but i, I think we ruled it correctly here no harm no foul for like you know trying to correct me here but when you correct me in front of a bunch of people that immediately triggers the well i'm gonna look it up and make sure you're right yeah there's like 400 people in the discord and then like at griffin you screwed up the rules in episode description which is one of our hottest like one of our hottest channels like of course you're going to get defensive about yeah that. yeah yeah and not even just on discord like, you call me out like somewhere else where there's even more eyes on mm-hmm. it it's like well i'm gonna look yeah. i'm gonna look i'm not just gonna like let it roll because honestly we try and get them right like, yeah. we try and get it and i think we do a pretty damn good job for how complicated the systems we play are of getting stuff right and the stuff that we get wrong doesn't as far as we have played it has not been like game breakingly wrong and altered the outcome of something. As far as my memory serves, yeah. we have not gotten something wrong to that level. Yes. So, like, we appreciate you guys forgive the small mistakes and we appreciate you calling us out when stuff is a small mistake that would clearly persist. Like, we, you know, we're reading something one way, like the freaking reach rules in TUI. Like, yeah. I would have been gimping Haley the whole time if somebody didn't call that out and say like, oh, hey, by the way, like this is different than one E. She can attack adjacent squares too. Like that's super valuable. Yes. And might get your one of your favorite characters a hero point because <laughs> I give out hero points when I ruled poorly. <laughs> so basically, long story short, we do appreciate the feedback. Keep it up. Just do your homework. Yeah. And also don't be a dick about it. We appreciate that too. <laughs> All right. Final question for the night. This comes from Alex. Three-month cruise of madness. That's one name. Seeing as you guys are experts supreme in regards to corruption and the corruption mechanics in Pathfinder, if you were tasked with creating a new corruption from scratch, what would it be? He provides his own example. I would make one based on food delivery services. Every month, if you don't order Uber Eats slash DoorDash slash skip the dishes, you progress down the track. The more your manifestation level, the more you have to spend and tip, and the corruption culminates in you becoming a delivery driver, and they have to leave the adventure to pick up Tarbifon's dinner. Only a wish spell can reverse this. Well, first of all, I would say, Alex, you regularly should tip your drivers. Yes. So that's, that's my first note. I hope you are doing that. But Griffin, what would you do? Uh, I think I would have, they, they don't ever do anything on the other axis of the alignment chart. So I would have like an axiomatic corruption, which is like you're, you're trending. You've been like something in your life has been manipulated by an axiomite, the, the pillars of law. Mm-hmm. And I think that'd be really interesting to like thrust on a very chaotic character where like you start having to do these like lawful actions gotta do it by the books right you gotta start doing things by the books and that kind of stuff and it doesn't necessarily make you evil like a normal corruption would but it it moves you towards the path of law maybe it does move you to like lawful evil instead of chaotic evil like a lot of the corruptions move you to but um i just think i think the flavor of going 
the other way with the alignment chart because all of the corruptions go like, hey, you become evil. So taking it one of the other directions would be really fun. And I think there's a lot of flavor that you can put on that and a lot of benefits that you could, you know, draw from an axiomite, right? And like at the end of the corruption, like you might become an axiomite. Sure. I wonder if there couldn't be benefits there, like whatever the touch of law or something spells where it's like, I can take a 10 on a certain type of check. Things that are very rigid as opposed to your regular, like, rolling and things determined by chance. Yeah, like the chaos one would be like, hey, you can roll twice on it, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. whimsy. Whimsy and chaos. I like that a lot. I I think that's really interesting in a alternate take on this system that a lot of times is very evil-focused and chaos-focused. Mine's probably evil and chaos focused, but when I read this, I immediately thought of the Rune Lords in the first edition adventures. So your rise, your shattered star, your return. And I thought it would be cool to have different corruptions tied to the different Rune Lords and their different associated sins. So you could have your Sloth Rune Lord where some of your drawbacks you start losing like speed yeah like you lose movement speed (laughs) and it could get bad enough where what's the condition like staggered or something where you could only take a move Mm -hmm. or a standard something like that where you start to lose maybe not agency but the ability to do the things that you want to do because you are slothful or i think there's a somewhat similar corruption today to like wrath where you get rageful and frustrated that's a very easy one to write you could do a lust one where you are trying to like get possessive of things or maybe that's greed or envy but i I think these all kind of write themselves yeah yeah it's the sins are very i wouldn't say one-dimensional but very siloed in a way that you could easily write a couple mechanics that follow along a, a sin you could bang them out quick they could be very easily tied into any of those three campaigns that I mentioned, or really any other campaign that takes place in that Varesia area where the Rune Lords had a lot of power. Honestly, you could do like a full sin spawn corruption. Like you could be like, you call it oh, like sure. sin warped. And maybe that would allow you to like expand across. Cause with corruptions, you pick boons and stains. So maybe instead of, 12 different boons or stains you can pick from that are all wrath focused maybe I can pick the wrath boon or the lust boon or mm-hmm. the envy boon and choose the difference ah oh, I like that that's cool and yeah usually a corruption mechanic actually has a like for the higher level stuff you need to have a certain amount of manifestations to get there mm-hmm. but maybe there's like a lower requirement but it's like you need to have two wrath manifestations to take this which allows you to rage or something. Sure, yeah. And so it's like less of a requirement, but it requires you to kind of like go down the the wrath path, mm-hmm. I guess, or go down the lust path and you can cast like uncontrollable lust twice a day or something. Yeah, this should write itself. I mean, all of the rune lords have an associated magical school, so you can pull either spells or spell-like abilities or thematic abilities to that stuff easy. Yeah. I like that one a lot. Cool. We nailed that question. (laughs) All right. That wraps up our listener questions for today. We have a little bit of housekeeping that I want to take care of before we officially sign off here. 
So this was mentioned in one of our earlier episodes. I think it was the last episode on the feed. Griffin, you mentioned this up at top. But instead of changing our diehard code every month or every quarter or what have you, we have a code that is going to last forever. It's hideous. Go on to dieharddice.com and use that offer code. Get some money back. That's it. Pretty simple. Yeah. It's just not changing a bunch of times anymore. So that's good. Yes. So they make awesome dice. We can save you a little bit of money if you use our code. Check them out. 15%. Babes. Oh, yeah. There's a couple other things that I got to be a little cagey about, but I want to start plugging now because they're going to be really awesome and exciting. Personally, I have a guest appearance lined up in another project that I can't announce yet, but is going to be really cool. It's a little bit different from what we do here at HLP. It's not a podcast. It's something a little bit different. You guys are going to love it. I'll tell you all about it soon, but I can't just get excited. And then finally, this is a really, really big one. PaizoCon is back, IRL. Oh, yeah, baby. Griffin, the two of us went to the last PaizoCon that was IRL. This was all the way ancient history 2019. Did you have a good time at PaizoCon? Seattle was never the same. It was not. Devastation. So the SeaTac area. Neither Seattle nor Tacoma could handle us. But here's the deal. PaizoCon is limited this year. There's only 500 people. They're going to be opening tickets soon. I think in the middle of March, we are going to try to be there. I think that's pretty simple. We don't know how much of you know, how many folks on the HLP are going to be there or what the meetup situation is going to look like. We have a lot in flux right now, but we have every intention of having a presence at PaizoCon. So we will keep you all posted what that's going to look like and how you can say, Hey, and I don't know, like take a picture together or something. Drink a Rainier beer. Well, more than one, probably. If history All of the Rainiers at the <laughs> at the hotel that Paisokan is in. Absolutely. All the ones they sell at the bar. So, again, like the last announcement, this is a big TBA to be announced. But just be ready. If you are interested in going to Paisokan, the HLP is going to do everything we can to have a presence there. And when we get that together, we're going to have a big old announcement. And I can't wait, man. It's been three years since we've been to a con. Yeah. There was a little baby podcast last time we were there. Yeah. Now everyone's going to know who we are when we're there. Now like five more people will know who we are. <laughs> like five more people. <laughs> yeah. But we're getting that Amiri poster, damn it. That's a, that's a story for off air. <laughs> PaisoCon 2022. The return and reclamation of the Amiri poster. Ooh. I'm getting it. You better watch out. Watch it. All right. I had a lot of fun talking about vampires, answering these questions, but we got to sign it off, Griffin. Is there anything you want to tell the folks at home? Finish your drinks. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. Later.